Hi, welcome to Arguably. I'm Ross Anderson, and today we're talking about sneakers. If you're not into sneakers, the obsession with them is somewhat strange. You see enormous shelves filled with many variations of various different sneakers and ask, what's the point? What's the point in spending thousands on so many pairs of shoes, many of which look very similar and may only get worn once? You see sneakers selling for thousands of dollars a pair, and they provoke incredible excitement among some people. And all you see are a pair of shoes. They might even look good. They might have a horrifically ugly color combination or just be utterly plain. And yet people freak out about them. In fact, this whole culture of spending thousands on shoes to show off may just strike you as vulgar. To the non-sneakerhead, a lot of the excitement about new shoes and who wears them and how many are made just seems like a popular, more mainstream version of stamp collecting. A pointless, somewhat embarrassing, confusing fixation for people who really should be spending their money better. But for sneakerheads, the listener who has their own collection of shoes and follows the new releases and saves up for special pairs and loves them, sneakers really mean something. These listeners think about the design of shoes, the great color combinations, the people made them, and the stories that inspired them. If you're walking through Soho, the non-sneakerhead sees a pair of plain white leather sneakers. But the sneakerhead sees a pair of Uptowns, the Air Force One. They're an almost perfect low-top profile penned for the legendary Bruce Kilgore, originally intended for basketball and adopted by Coke Boys and saved by three Baltimore stores downtown locker room, Cinderella Shoes, and Charlie Rudo Sports. To the non-sneakerhead buyer, an Air Force One is just a nice white leather shoe. It's a default shoe. But for the sneakerhead, when they see a pair of Air Force Ones, they think of Nelly and ASAP Rocky and the aspirational hip-hop culture of getting a pair of white-on-whites and only wearing them once. And they think of the kids who wanted to be a part of that culture, who scrubbed their forces clean with toothbrushes, and walked with curved toes so the shoes stayed fresh and uncreased for as long as possible. Women's fashion and luxury fashion have long allowed for a more dynamic, exciting, bright, colourful, free forms of self-expression. But sneakers gave working-class boys an opportunity to express themselves in a way that felt true to them, and appreciate style in design and something they related to and could afford. That's what sneaker culture is at its best, and it's that part of sneaker culture that I love and resonate with. The stories, the design, the history, the people. It's why I own almost 40 pairs of shoes. But the affluence part, the part of sneaker culture which is just showing off how much money you have, with no connection to the culture, of pointless wasteful spending because something's trendy and a bunch of people online are in frenzy because they're fire before forgetting about that shoe next week. That part of sneaker culture just depresses me. Old school sneakerheads would probably think of me as a sneakerhead. I know the history and have an enormous passion for this stuff, and I do use it to describe myself in this conversation with Brendan, who unquestionably is a sneakerhead or the sneaker man. But I generally have resisted the label. In part, it's because I love fashion generally. In part, it's because a lot of sneaker culture is pretty mindless and lacks unique taste. It's just a lot of young men lusting after the same shoes, not really thinking if they actually care about those pair or like them. The only hyped shoe in my collection are the Argon Union Dunks and I bought those at retail. But the biggest part of my reticence is that I really hate the affluent show-off element of this culture. My guest today is Brendan Dunn, and he's a true expert on sneakers. 
He's the general manager of Stall Collector, which is part of Complex. And in article and podcast form, he tells the stories behind various sneakers, leaks new releases, and makes the history of footwear more accessible to new readers. If you don't get why the Louis Vuitton Air Force One is so important, read his complex piece on the history behind it, which I've linked in the description for this episode. And every week, he co-hosts Full Size Run and the Complex Sneaker Show, both available on YouTube through Complex. Personally, I've watched them for years, and unwinding with the Complex Sneaker Show on a Friday evening is how I start my weekend. This is a slightly shorter conversation than usual. And that's all on me. I'm a moron, and I got my timers mixed up and sort of rushed through it. I'm new to podcasting, forgive me. However, it's a really great, fun, rich conversation, the kind of which I wish we heard more of in sneakers, and doesn't happen enough. And whether you like sneakers or not, I think you'll get something out of this. If you want to support the podcast and participate in the end-of-year Ask Me Anything episode, become a supporter at arguablypod.com. But in the meantime, enjoy. Brendan Dunn, welcome to Arguably. Thank you for having me, Ross. Happy to be here. To start with probably the hardest question, but also the broadest, what makes a great sneaker? I think there are a lot of different things that can make a great sneaker. For me, it usually has to do with some cultural attachment and some way they become special through who adapts them and who's wearing them and in what situations. But these things that we love are also performance items on some level. So I think that's something that can often add to a great sneaker, although usually less so in the way that people like me interpret them. But, you know, if it helps you run faster, it helps you jump higher, things like that. Those are hard things to measure, but I think that those things can contribute to it as well. What's fascinating about footwear is that unlike almost any other part of fashion, when you put it on, it makes you move differently. Yeah. I have a pair of platform boots and it makes me feel completely differently when I walk in those compared when I walk in my next percents or by Jordan. And that's one of the fascinating things about sneakers. I guess that's where that feeling comes from, that there's so many different ways you can physically experience a shoe. Yeah, it's so foundational to the way we move too, right? It's the thing that keeps us rooted and the things that ties us down, you know, and yeah, really guides us through life in a way. When we're new to sneakers, I think many young people who came into sneakers during COVID, for instance, the instinct of what to buy is simply, that's the hot new thing and you go for it. Now, I have a decent collection of shoes at this point. You put me to shame. When you have a sort of large collection, it changes the way that you think about it. So first, roughly how many shoes do you have? And then second, how has that changed the way that you think about what sneakers you want to buy and what interests you? I get this question a lot in terms of how many shoes that I have and always have to approximate. I think it's around 400 right now, but I'm not totally sure. I also get rid of stuff fairly often, and every few years I try and downsize by about 200 pairs. So I think it's at 400 pairs of shoes that I own right now, which is down from an all-time high of closer to six or 700. Honestly, it really limits, in a way, the shoes I wear, which I know sounds contradictory, but just in terms of the way they're physically arranged in my home, it's hard to access the things that you put at the bottom of a stack of 18 pairs of shoes. So if I want to wear a certain thing that I know is not that accessible, I, I might not end up wearing it. So in a way, yes, I own hundreds of pairs of sneakers, but sometimes it feels like I only own the shoes that are on the very top of each of those piles because 
anything beyond that involves this reverse Tetris undoing of things that have been stacked up and delicately jangled. So I do own a lot of shoes and I'm, and I'm happy to, but sometimes it feels like they're all accessible to me. And that does though affect the way I acquire new sneakers because I can think of all the moments in my past where I've felt like I needed to have something and felt like this shoe was really important or, you know, something that I've done a lot. And I don't know if you can relate to this, Russ, but is to pick a certain silhouette and become obsessed with that silhouette for a while and just buy a bunch of colorways of it. Nike Air Hirachi Light is one example of a shoe that briefly I, I was buying a bunch of pairs of, but then five years later realized I'd never worn any of them. When the Nike Zoom Fly first came out, I was so excited about that sneaker. I actually had a pair a few months before they came out from the Breaking 2 attempt in Italy. And that's a great shoe and one that I did actually end up wearing. But there was some moment where I decided I want every colorway of that sneaker that ever released and was keeping up to a certain point with the frequency of colorways that release and then just realized this is a stupid mission. Why am I doing this? So yeah, the amount of pairs I've acquired and purchased helps me to be more conservative now of people I go to in my life and ask them, do I want this for this much money? Is this something I'll ever wear? And those people are wiser than me. Is a new silhouette often more appealing to you? Something like the next Crazy Infinity from Adidas, which relates to the Kobe line, but it's a new version of it. Is that appealing more or is it a retro of something that you can't go back and get an old version that's actually wearable? If they re-release the Air Burst today, to give an apt example, I think both of us would pick up a pair. And part of the reason is that if you buy an old pair, they may burst. Right. Um, I think it's usually the older stuff that sticks with me in that way, that I feel like it has that history or that staying power to it, where it's been around for a few decades or years and, and I still enjoy it or it still means something to me. Sometimes those new silhouettes, and I think we as a whole, as sneaker people, do not pay enough attention to new sneakers and new design, and it's easy to become addicted to retro, and that's what this slice of the business is based on. Still, e even with that, I tend to buy retro sneakers more, and I think the way I can rationalize it to myself is, like I said, this stuff has been around for decades, and I still am into it, and it still looks good to me, versus something that is sometimes new and hot for the moment, but then a year or two years down the line didn't really stand the test of time. And how important is the part of sneaker culture that we pay lots of attention to that Complex makes its business on? How important is this to the actual sneaker brands? Is this something where it's an actual sizable part of their business? Or is a Travis Scott Jordan 1 primarily valuable to Nike as a way to get people to buy white or white Air Force 1s when they're thinking about buying a new shoe or when they go to get new running shoe, they have Nike in mind instead of Asics. I think both things are true. I think this version of sneaker consumption that you and participate in that Complex is focused on covering is very important and significant to the sneaker brands and makes up a decent chunk of their revenue, especially when you think about a shoe like the white and black Panda Nike Dunk Low and how that was at one point purely a sneakerhead shoe and was real volume model that contributes significantly to Nike earnings. I believe that and everything I've known and studied suggests that. But at the same time, I do think that certain limited edition ones are not really profitable for brands 
and are meant as marketing tools or part of a budget that is not concerned with purely making money for the brand, but making hype and excitement for the brand and leading people to, like you said, buy more accessible versions of that shoe. So if they can't get the Travis Scott Jordan one that they really want, they might go to a similarly colored Air Jordan one with brown, black and white panels on it. And if they can't get that, maybe they'll find some approximation of that somewhere down the line in terms of distribution. The Nike Air Max Scorpion, where would that fit in? Is that something where they're just making it as a flagship sort of example of tech? Or is this something like the Air Max 270, which I don't think they expected to be a big hit, but you throw stuff out there and hope that it works. And the 270, it really did. And at the Scorpion, it really hasn't. Yeah, I would think that the trajectory for the Scorpion would be planned more toward the Air Max 270, but you can't predict that a sneaker like that would become that massive. I mean, I don't know how you feel about the Air Max 270 as a sneaker. It's not that interesting to me or that not that striking a silhouette, but years later, it's such a volume shoe for Nike and you see it so much. I think that they would love for that to happen with the Air Max Scorpion. I think it's a bit harder because the shoe is significantly more expensive. It's not a cheap sneaker and for a shoe to get into that lane, I think it has to be, you know, really accessible in terms of price. I feel like the Scorpion has a long way to go to get there, but I've been wrong about sneakers before. Yeah, I really like the Scorpion and the yellow cream color at like 115, but not not anywhere near the retail. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, what is the retail price for that shoe? It's it's near I think it's 220 or something like that. Yeah. Like that is so much money for people who aren't into sneakers. For you and me, paying that much for a pair of shoes feels relatively normal, but for the person who wants to go buy a pair of white and white Air Force Ones or a pair of black and white Nike Dunks or an Air Max 270, 220 is just astronomical, right? So I think that's holding it back from being in that zone. But it's a cool shoe and I like that bag. I mean, we're so many decades removed from the debut of Nike Air Max technology, but I think it's still so special. And when they do certain things with the bag, it just looks so cool on the bottom of a pair of shoes, right? There's shoes that released in the 70s. I I think of the phone poles in the same way that if you release the phone posit today, brand new, yeah. it would look like a completely modern silhouette. Oh, yeah. And I think the Air Max and the whole line, the best models are exactly the same way. They don't feel retro. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Phone posit is one of those ones that will always feel futuristic. Like, I don't know if in my lifetime that sneaker could feel dated, even though they've done so much with it in terms of retros. And there have been times when they kind of rinsed it and did the wrong colorways and went too far with the printed stuff, you know, Weatherman foam posits and things like that. We didn't need any of that, but just still as a silhouette and the original blue is still so striking and still feels like something from a time that we haven't reached yet. When you came into sneaker culture, a lot of this was around going to stores, finding stuff you'd never seen before about meetups, essentially the cars and coffees of the sneaker world. In my generation, it's Instagram. Has that mm -hmm. really been harmful to sneaker culture where there's many shoes that I really love that I've never seen in person, but I've seen them all over my feed. Does this sort of create a distorted sense? Or is this just a new version of Nike talk and there's not really anything different here? To give one side angle, Bobby Hundred sort of has used this as his argument that sneaker NFTs make a hell of a lot of sense. And that kind of depressed me. <laughs> well, I'm not going to go on here and say that sneaker NFTs make a lot of sense. I'm still not sold on that. But I don't think that it's harmful that people consume shoes digitally now more than they did in the past. I think that it's 
a bit of a shame sometimes to imagine that people won't have the same in-store experiences as some of us did from generations before, even though a lot of the shoes that I first became obsessed with, I did online and that had to do also with like living somewhere that was quite remote. So people have stories of going to 21 Mercer when it first opened or Bobito's footwork or Dave's quality meat and things like that. I, I was living in a place that was extremely remote and we really didn't have access to anything like that. So even though I come from a slightly different generation than the young people consuming sneakers, as collectors now i wasn't trying to age you I re- no 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 <laughs> back when michael jordan releases them what did you think <laughs> <laughs> no but i'm just saying like even for me it wasn't a super like in-store physical relationship when i first got into sneakers just because i didn't have access from a geographic standpoint but no i don't think it's worse and i think in some ways it's opened up the channels and there are so many more niches and different specific ways people can be into sneakers that can expose you to shoes you've never seen before i mean some of these instagram pages that i follow or you know there's models from the 2000s that we never thought about that someone digs out puts up for sale and looks pretty good in 2023 and i don't think that stuff existed when i was first getting into sneakers granted we were in that era but i think that the online version of sneaker collecting has allowed for so much more niche obsessions subcultural levels of it and different nodes where we're into different things rather than this culture around sneakers of oh we all like the jordan one all like the air max one and we all like the adidas superstar I want to suggest theorize as Marxist reading of sneaker culture and sneaker heritage that sort of puts it in a very negative spin. Okay. So to reframe it, working class people made sneakers a cool thing because they couldn't acquire luxury goods. They found these items that were otherwise just used functionally. They saw something beautiful in it and really cool. Large producers and distributors saw that, realized they could make a huge market out of this, did so, and spun stories and backgrounds and origins to sell them. Then resellers and people who speculated on these shoes did the same thing, driving up their value. So now you've ended up in a position where many of those most hyped items that originally became valuable in these working class communities are now completely inaccessible to those same communities. So it otherwise leaves working class kids feeling like they can't get any of the cool sneakers. Or they do buy it and they get robbed by a system that is far more wealthy than they are for a Travis Scott sneaker that probably had a production budget of $37 and they've spent a 20th of their annual income or a 10th of their annual income on buying these shoes. Why is that twist, that spin on sneaker history, sneaker culture wrong? I don't necessarily think it's wrong. I think that's an astute observation. And I think that that is something that definitely has happened. But I also think that you can rely on that same group of people who originally made them cool to figure out other things that are cool. If sneakers become the new luxury unattainable item i think you would expect that same group of people to say okay we're not going to do the travis scott jordan one we're not going to do the unobtainable super duper limited tiffany air force one or or whatever it is we're going to do something that is still accessible and is still cool in a way that those other consumers don't necessarily understand yet or there are still things that we can highlight i mean the amount of shoes being made and different brands even for somebody like me who is obsessed with this thing and is paid to think about it for 40 plus hours a week there are all kinds of brands and models that i'm not aware of so i think that there's still room for those people to enjoy this thing and and kind of turn it again if you know what i mean 
one of the arguments that you've made on the podcast, Complex Sneakers Podcast, which I listen to every Friday, is that one of the reasons not to buy fake sneakers is that there are so many great sneakers that are sitting on shelves and not just sitting on shelves, but you can get on discount. But also sneaker culture is built around scarcity and thus sort of resale values. You know, color of the month, Air Force Ones are great and have a way richer history than the Dior Jordan one. But Dior sort of cheated its cultural relevance and the Dior Jordan one will always get more attention than the next color of the month. Is there any way that we can change that and that we should approach it differently or even just as a sneaker consumer, a way to counter those biases? This may sound self-serving, but I do think the way to counter it to an extent is to have conversations like the ones we do on our shows and websites in terms of trying to not steer people toward what to buy because we really don't want to be too prescriptive in terms of how people should enjoy sneakers or which ones they should enjoy, but kind of use our platforms and our voices to say, well, this shoe on Air Force One, a sneaker I purchased when they did the retro stuff recently. I have the white pink and gum version that comes with a little toothbrush. Granted, I waited for it to go on super duper sale because I saw that all of them were going on sale and I knew that was going to be a thing. But to highlight for people that, hey, this is an important shoe, which I think I wrote a story about that whole project maybe seven years ago or something like that when they were doing the pairs earlier retro run that referenced the Color of the Month series. To highlight for people why those things are important and the other hand, why something like a Dior Jordan 1 is, in our opinion, and it sounds like in your opinion as well, lacking authenticity. So I think that there are ways to educate people and let them know. Again, I don't love being too prescriptive about what is and isn't cool, but at least about what does and doesn't have history and and where these things come from. One of the other things I was curious about is what makes a collaboration get your attention? So last year, Vans did a collaboration with Lizzie Armanto, skated for the Tokyo Olympics in the first skateboarding at the Olympics last year. It was the first time a skating shoe had been designed by women for Vans in 20 years. And this undoubtedly sold more shoes, for instance, than the J-Tips Saucony collaboration. But the J-Tips gets a ton of coverage, and I didn't really see much. I own a pair of the Lizzie, so I'm biased, but I didn't see much coverage of the Lizzie, for instance. What is it that makes a collaboration really get your attention and you feel like this is something that's culturally important and and deserves to be covered? At this point, I think one thing that really helps is when it's somebody who's unexpected or somebody who I haven't seen given a platform before. I mean, there's lots of collaborations that I enjoy from people who have been hanging around the sneaker brands for years, and those are already established. But I'm more interested when a smaller brand or entity can get that shot and get that chance. And that's, I think, why somebody like J-Tips resonated with us, especially because once we realized that he was a guy who just came from the New York City sneaker scene, we had a conversation with him on our podcast afterward, and all those stories he was telling were so familiar and salient in terms of how we came up through sneakers, so that was really exciting. Like I said, just seeing new names in the mix, this is a personal one for me to an extent, but Carpet Company is one example of skate brand based in Washington, D.C. that I've been supporting for a long time. Friends with the guys who run it, and to see them get their own ESB a couple years back was so special, and thinking about that as significantly small entity and a name that hadn't been able to attach itself to a big sneaker brand prior to that. The two brothers who run it have real history in sneakers. Yeah, those unexpected names popping up like, oh, wow, this person or this brand is going to get to do a shoot. That's exciting. That's cool that this billion dollar entity or multi-billion dollar entity like a Nike or Adidas is going to trust some 
relatively small name to redo one of their shoes in a way that makes sense and makes noise. I want to ask you also about sneaker release strategies, because that's where a lot of this culture comes from. The decrease in the resale value should give people more of a chance on confirmed and sneakers apps, but they are theoretically more democratic and should be a better system, but they don't feel like it to most users. The Ronnie Fi Adidas Clark pre-order was extremely successful. The resale value is ridiculous at this point, and the people who placed a pre-order at the time got their shoes and they're happy, but you can't do that for many, many models. And on the flip side, the Cortez release was this big moment and people really loved it, but stores don't do that sort of release anymore that often because it's very expensive and also it can sometimes get dangerous. So looking at that broader picture, where do you see sneaker releases going forward in the future? What should we think that we'll see more physical releases? Will these apps improve? Where do you think things shake out? I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and I try not to make too many predictions about that in sneakers because it allows me to be wrong more often. But I do hope that we'll see more in-store releases and more things that convince people to go outside and interact with the people who are into these things and interact with these objects on a physical level. I think that that's something that's super necessary because I think sneakers is the best example of this, but buying shoes online through apps like that just became so depressing and so tiring, I think, when we were in the peak of COVID and there was nothing better to do than stare at your phone all day and enter every raffle on sneakers just because you could and miss out on a percent of them. I would love to see the pendulum swing back in the other way and us get away from things like that. And I think, and we'll talk about Nike probably more than any other brand just because they're the biggest in the space, but I think Nike wants that as well. And I think they realized that at some point that there was a fatigue around that and there was too much of that. And I think that's something you'll see bear out in how stores release shoes and oh, they connect with people, hopefully in a, I mean, organic is kind of a cliche word in, in, in this sense, because we are talking about brands trying to make money off of us, but in a way that feels more memorable than just punching through on it. Emily, is there any rhyme or reason to which shoes get retroed and which succeed? I was thinking of the Nike Kukini was something that you folks and Lil Yachty, for instance, were really keen on getting a comeback. And those sat hard, uh, you know, did not get much attention. And then there are shoes that, like, I love the Air Revolution. It has a ton of history, mm. but that hasn't been retro in ages. So what's the decision-making behind that? Themes? Why do some succeed and why don't others? Am I really responsible for this Eric Kukini thing? Yes, a couple people yes, have mentioned are. this to me. Was I that gung-ho about the Eric Kukini? I think it was one of these things where the three of you all thought, yes, that's great. And then shortly after JLP did the complex closets with Yachty and he Mm -hmm. was like, yeah, it's so cool. So it just had had this bubbling (laughs) and then they came out and nothing happened. I'm so glad you brought this up because people have mentioned this to me. So I guess I I trust your word, Ross, that on the Complex Sneakers podcast, my co-hosts and I, Joe LaPuma, Matt Welty and myself were all saying that the Kukini would be a cool thing to bring back. I don't think that it came back explicitly because of that. It, it, this would be a nice place to enlarge my influence and claim that Nike took notes on everything I said and reacted accordingly. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. But I remember after that and the Kukini did come out, I had some random commenter calling me out for the way that we were adding to climate change because us 
begging, apparently, Nike, which sounds like you're confirming, to bring back the Kukini. It wasn't begging. It was saying it would be really cool. (laughs) Resulted in some outsized effect on the brand's carbon footprint through them producing many millions of pairs of Kukinis and them sitting on shelves and us being totally to blame. And then somebody else more recently said, yes, you guys said you wanted the Kukini back, but you never bought any of them. I really, I, this is, I'm so, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I genuinely do not remember being record as such a Kukini fan. A start but upping of course the I have revolution. to apologize. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. asking you to start calling that out, please. But here's the thing. If the air revolution comes back after a long campaign that I initiated and it doesn't do anything, then that burden. I'll buy a couple of pairs. I promise. You better buy more than a couple because the blame will be all on you if it's speeding up climate change in any way. One of the things that's interesting is that your reporting is really solid on releasing new sneakers when they come early. And I think a lot of people don't do journalism for a living think that people leak to because Nike's planned this out. That isn't basically ever it. It's never a corporate plan to leak something early. But why is it that people come to you to leak details about sneakers early? Why do they come to me? Well, I don't know. I I, got to just be vague and and kind of coy about this because I never want to give any details about how it is that I get that information. I'm trying to think if there's anything meaningful I can say. It's It's a fair question to ask. I think that there are a lot of different motivations. I I think that to some extent, like me, they just want to see the information out there. So we're, we're happy to deliver it when we can. I'll ask one final question, then move on to quick questions. And it's on sort of journalistic ethics. And it's because you cover the sneaker industry very well. You report on lawsuits, you break new stuff, which I'm sure the companies aren't particularly happy with. But also you are an influencer, you're Instagram, you take paid promotions. You also get sent free products. I do too, but you will resell some of your free products. How do you sort of work that out with the incentives and the ethics there that you feel like you aren't compromised in any way? Yeah, it's an important question to ask ourselves. I'm glad that you're asking it here. We have a team of people basically who we're trying to weigh every decision we make in terms of what goes on the site and how we're framing things and being as unbiased as we can and honest with each other in terms of like, hey, is this a fair way to present this thing? Am I being swayed by my relationship with this person or this brand? Am I being fair enough to them? Am I holding them accountable? And I think more than any particular transaction that you speak of, it it has to do with how well you know these people and how fair you're going to be to them based on your relationship with them. To me, that's the, the hardest thing about it. And I think that that kind of comes up even if you're not entangled with the brands in the way that we are. But I think it's just a question of having other people on your team who can hold you accountable and say, no, we're not going to do that. No, that's that's not worth it. Or like, hey, this didn't really happen like this. This is what really happened. I hope our track record reflects that and shows how willing we are to hold brands accountable and call them when need be and speak the truth inside them. After the break, quick questions with Brendan Dunn. Quick questions. First, every classic sneaker silhouette was originally a performance shoe. Does this mean that Yeezy silhouettes will not be classics in the future? I think that's a fine take, but also I think that Yeezys are built with enough performance technology in them in terms of primeness and boost that they can be considered adjacent enough to performance sneakers to qualify as such. 
related to that, in 20 years' time, will the next percent be the next classic lifestyle silhouette? I love the next percent, and I love that whole line from Nike, but it's so hard to wear as a casual sneaker that I'm not certain it will. But I think things that are less extreme, but in the same vein, like the Nike Zoom Fly that I mentioned earlier, to me, that's a classic. And to me, that fills that role. With the rise of F1 as the next big American sport, should we expect driver shoes to be the next hit trend in sneakers? I hope so. Although I think the way Puma has monopolized the league means that it's a little bit unlikely, but I would be thrilled. What underappreciated Stephen Smith's shoe would you like to see retroed? <laughs> uh, none come to mind. I feel like he's enjoyed such a renaissance of all his catalog being plundered right now by the various brands he spent time at through the decades. So I, I think he's got enough. Why were the big bubble Air Max 1 not a bigger deal? They were the biggest deal, but a bubble was it's, it's as big as possible. I don't know. I think maybe people aren't that keen on Air Maxes right now. And I think that the smaller bubble version of the shoe is so embedded in our brains at this point that to see that original version just felt a little bit jarring, some subconscious level. I have the sneaker, but I haven't worn them yet. And I was excited about it. Are the new Nike Hirachi runners a good pair of shoes? It's fine. It's it's a fine shoe. I'm not offended by it. It's not for me. I won't spend money on it, but... If they retroed them, would you buy a pair of SB RFCs? No, I don't need any of those. No, no. What are the best attainable sneakers that represent London sneaker culture? I I, I guess Air Max 95s. I don't know. I, I don't think that many people are looking to me for answers on London sneaker culture, so I'll you, leave that to... There's uh, one. To people out in the UK. <laughs> What's the most you've spent on a pair of sneakers? So here's the thing. It doesn't totally qualify as a sneaker. Well, I guess, but when Henderskeen was first doing their kind of nude leather versions of popular sneaker silhouettes, so they would do a Jordan 4, stripped of all the branding and logos, or Force 1 or things like that, and they had a, a new balance. I think it was the 1400 or the 1300, I can't quite remember. But I did buy a pair of those Hender Scheme New Balance ripoffs that were done in this premium leather. And the sole is not quite sneakery, but relatively sneakery. So that's the shoe that I've spent the most money on. I think they, they were a lot of money if you bought them not directly from Japan. I think N Clothing at the time, they were around $1,000. But if you worked your way through and sourced a pair directly from Japan, you could get them significantly cheaper, which is still very expensive. And I think it was around $600. This was two questions away, but I'll move it up. Why hasn't Tender Scheme been sued by Nike? I think Tender Scheme avoided that because one, they arrived before the current wave of bootleg trends and people really milking key for that. And they never used anything that close to approximating any of Nike's logos, which I think has been pretty key. And yeah, I, I, I just think they slipped in there before Nike was quite so bullish about protecting its intellectual property and trade dress. What's the best shoe from Onitsuka Tiger? Can I say, uh, does it have, like I can't say an ASIC shoe? I mean, shoe? it's a bit of a cheat, <laughs> but you can. <laughs> a gel light three, I don't know. What's the point of Jound collaborations? To me, they just seem like overpriced, <laughs> GRs. The point of Jown collaborations is for people like me to exhibit their snobbery in the most subtle way possible. 
the grey 2022 Stussy uh, Spiridon cage was pretty quickly forgotten, but was three years ahead of the current sneaker uh, curve in tech pull runners. If you were to bet, what's the 2023 shoe that will be three years ahead of what's to come? Oh, see, this is another prediction thing, and I, I, I feel like my... I'm worried my opinion or my prediction will age poorly. And people will blame you for climate change for it. <laughs> yes, imagine imagine the burden. The 2023 sneaker that will feel predictive when we reflect on in some year's time. You know, I could cheat here and just like bring up a sheet of Nike 2024 releases. I don't know. Oh, this is tough. This is a tough one. You can skip a prediction question if you like. That's fine. All right. I'll, I'll skip it. Is Matt Welty correct about Puma? No. No. Do, do you expect to see more sneaker stores closing in the next five years? Yes. Yes, I do. I expect to see more sneaker stores closing, unfortunately. What's the best sneaker store in the world? It's funny. We had a conversation recently within our team in terms of what's the biggest sneaker boutique in the world and we just got into all this weird semantics about what is and isn't a sneaker boutique and what qualifies or disqualifies stores from that the question is what's the best sneaker store in the world however you want to take it what's the place that you like going to most that sells sneakers and isn't end <laughs> um the place that i like going to the most you know what one that really sticks out that I do enjoy and did enjoy when I went is this place called Soma in Tokyo in a neighborhood <laughs> called Shimokitazawa that just has so cool. strictly vintage shoes and not even a lot of models that I know a lot about because it's very heavy Adidas and that's not my particular expertise, but just being in there felt so special and so many weird and crusty releases from decades past that I'd never known about or rediscovered. So that, that that's one that really was special to me and, and the place I tell people to go whenever they mention that they're going to Japan. Do you like Montclair sneakers? I like the Montclair sneakers that Nathan Van Hook designed. I think that his tenure there was unfortunately quite quick and so I don't think there will be much more that's too thrilling from them, but I hope that he's left the team there in capable hands. I also like the Zellerfeld stuff they did more recently, but I'm, I'm good friends with people over at Zellerfeld, so full disclosure there. Has Ama Manier fallen off? I don't think Ama Manier has fallen off. I just think they have a ton of sneaker collaborations at this point, and it's hard to get excited about everyone. Should the Jordan Futures get more love? No, the Jordan Futures have enough love. Well, actually, I feel like they could, they could use a little bit more love because I feel like people who just got into sneakers maybe don't remember how much of a moment that was and can't understand that so I feel like they're probably at a pretty malign spot like nobody cares about the Jordan future right now right and we would even look back and say it's a bad shoe but I don't think it was a bad shoe how dare you sir <laughs> you're a big Jordan future fan I like the the light blue and I like the black with the gum sole I think they're both great yeah it was a moment I was I was happy with it Given his significance as a cultural tastemaker, why has Pharrell's Adidas line lost its hype? I picked up a pair of Sikonas for £50. I don't know. That's a really tough one, especially given the moment that Pharrell's having right now. I just think that that shape and that style of Adidas isn't what people want from the brand right now. I think that has a lot to do with it. 
Why are the LV Air Force Ones more culturally significant than Dapper Dan's new Puma collaboration? Surely the latter is a more authentic expression of that same root culture. I don't know if it's a more authentic expression. I just feel like the, I mean, I guess, I guess there are pluses and minuses for both, especially when you consider Puma's real historical significance and hip hop. I think it has more to do with the execution and the staying power, sorry to use a term used earlier, of that bootleg Air Force One style combined with luxury fashion monogram prints through decades. I just think that's a conversation that exists diagonally that is more exciting. Given our desire for people to actually wear their sneakers, are Golden Goose overhated? No, Golden Goose are never could never be overhated. Speaking of hate, why are the ISPA shoes so terrible? I don't think all of them are that bad. This is going to sound like um, not being as, as harsh on them as I could, but I feel like when you are given a directive to be as experimental as possible, which is, I don't think, purely what that team is intended to do, but I think you're going to end up with some stuff that looks truly bizarre. So at least they're making shoes that look different, if not always shoes that look good. I think last year's Hangul Day 97s are better than the Sean Weatherspoons. Am I wrong? Yes. Sean Weatherspoon, Air Max 197, absolute classic. I saw a person waiting for the train in them last night, and it reaffirmed my strong belief that that shoe is a classic. And I try to use the word classic very conservatively. Will Anta be the next big sneaker brand? No. I don't think so. I'm more of a Li Ning guy when you think of the Chinese brands. I think Li Ning is doing a lot of cool stuff. I was going to ask question two down again. Why isn't Li Ning a bigger deal? Dude, Li Ning is good. I don't know. I think that those brands just have fought such a long fight in terms of getting exposure outside of Asia, outside of China. And Li Ning has tried to tried to make an imprint in the U.S. at various times and just not done a very good job of it. And part of it is on people like me, because sometimes when I see those leaning shoes, I'm like, shit, why are you covering these more? These are awesome. Why aren't there any good pride release shoes? Mm, I think there are some okay ones. Remember the, the sock dart, the pride yeah. Nike sock dart? I think that was one of the best ones. Um, I think the leaks metallic dunks that are supposed to be coming out, the be true, those look really cool, but yeah. it, the, the they made me sandal? think. I, mm-hmm. I like that Deschutes pair a lot. I think there have been some okay ones over the years. Does Adidas regret signing Kanye? No way. No, you can't. I mean, he gave them so much. It ended in an awful, spectacular shitstorm. It was still the right decision to sign him, I think. As somebody from Belfast, should I try to pick up an era Nike Dunk? Wow, is this a sensitive question? I don't know. Um, no, I mean, sensitive for you, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, depending on where your allegiances lie. Why has Reebok been so bad at handling their celebrity collaborations? They had Kanye, they had Travis, they had Kendrick, and they botched all of them. I feel like one of the issues with Reebok there in those eras was they maybe didn't have the resources to really handle those people. But also, if you look before that, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, I think there was a time when they were quite good at it and quite trailblazing. I just think that more recently, 
especially under the structure of Adidas that they didn't have what they needed to make them really special. Which store designer would you most like to see collaborate on a Solomon shoe? I don't know if any particular store designer sticks out. I mean, honestly, I just love the inline Solomon colorways and I feel like they're doing so much cool stuff that doesn't need a cosign. So I'm very happy with what Solomon's doing on their own right now. Final three questions. One, what's the greatest sneaker that most listeners won't be aware of? It's hard because so much of this stuff is so personal and like they're they're great to me, but is it too bold to put them out there as for an entire listenership when it's stuff that means a lot to me? Go ahead. A Nike Air Footscape Motion. That's a shoe you'll see me bring out every once in a while on that same level of intended snobbery. Just weirdo stuff in the mid two thousands, you know what I mean? Things that we will likely never see retro. Actually, that's another prediction I don't want to make somewhere down the line. Someone will dig this back up and say, "This you said this was never going to happen. Here, footscape motion. People don't think about shoes like this. I love this shoe. People don't care about it. That's fine. Wow, they had a retro in 2017. That's so funny. Two, who is the most important figure in sneaker history that most listeners won't have heard of? Other than me. Well, no, that doesn't count because... They're, they're, they're listening to you now. Yeah, they've heard of me and they've heard me. Um, I think I'll say this name just because he's an interesting one to me and someone I hope to speak to in the future and someone I've spoken to in the past, but never in a formal interview or anything like that. But Angelo Anastasio is a guy who helped establish Adidas in Hollywood in the 80s and really helped the brand make a mark in terms of entertainment marketing. And that crossover is something I'm very interested in. Final question. Where can people find you and what are you working on now? People can find me on Full Size Run, one of the weekly shows I do, Complex Sneakers Podcast, another of the weekly shows I do. I think we're actually renaming the Complex Sneakers show, but just, you'll find it. They can find me on Instagram. They can find me on Elon Musk's X, but I won't be putting much on there. What am I working on right now? Just wrapping up the season's right now and uh, I'm trying to enjoy my summer. That's that's the hard work I'm focused. Brandon Dunn, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you really enjoyed it, become a supporter at arguablypod.com. For just £5 a month or £50 a year, you can listen to episodes early, participate in the end-of-year Ask Me Anything episode, and join the comment section. You can follow me on threads, Twitter, and Instagram at, at thatrosschap, and the podcast at arguablypod on Instagram and arguably underscore pod on Twitter. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. See you in a fortnight.